Our Old Testament reading and sermon text for today is found in Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come not of the cleanness of our hands, out of the cleanliness of our minds or hearts, but we come because you invite us. You spoke and we came into existence. You say, come, and we come. We come to hear your word. We come to be changed by it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying in your sight, the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever felt like you were drowning? Have you ever felt like you were drowning? Maybe it was when you were thrown off an inner tube uh, right on the lake on a beautiful Wisconsin summer day. Or maybe it was falling through the ice on a terribly cold winter Wisconsin day. Perhaps you fell into the deep end of the pool or you maybe were swept under an ocean wave. When that happened or happens, what do you experience? What do you feel? Your toes reach for the bottom, right? You claw for the surface. Panic, hopelessness, despair set in. Maybe the drowning or despair for you or a time you can remember feeling that way wasn't in water. Maybe it was in schoolwork. You waited all semester and it's the night before. Drowning, right? Despair. Maybe it was in work, work, you can't figure out this project and your family's livelihood is on the line. Perhaps, perhaps it's in broken relationships with mom and dad. Maybe it's in frustrating relationships with son or daughter or a desired son or daughter. Despair sets in. You wonder, can anybody see me, hear me, help me? Perhaps you feel it in the impending recession and an ailing economy where every day you indeed grow poorer and the despair creeps in. See, despair comes out of being or feeling utterly helpless, utterly hopeless. That's where the despair, what it can be defined as. And we've all been there. We've all felt that at some point or another. And normally it's terrifying and terrible, but our Psalm today actually shows a good despair, at least initially, a good despair to feel. And that's a despair that every human on the planet should feel at some point. That is a despair over our personal sin. 
Now, many, uh, especially in Wisconsin, when confronted with the despair over their sin, they practice what we might call better than the next guy-ism religion, right? I'm not so bad, not like that guy, that political party, that fill-in-the-blank. Or on the opposite end, some set out to punish themselves, right? Beating themselves up, saying, if I can do that enough, right, then God will be pleased with me. If I can do enough good, I'll just equal that balance out before God. See, the psalm reveals the normalcy and the necessity of feeling despair over our sin. But it's not that we would continue on in despair, but rather that our despair in the end would turn to hope. And hope where? Hope in the Lord. A certain hope. The same type of hope that you know tomorrow the sun is going to rise, right? A certain hope. It's that type of certain hope that we have that redemption, redemption for each of us will in fact dawn, that it will come for those who trust in Jesus Christ. See, Psalm 130 is teaching us this today. If you want to capture or take hold of a big idea here, it's with God alone, redemption is certain. With God alone, redemption is certain. So what do we do? We hope in the Lord. We hope in the Lord. Now, to hope in the Lord, what might that look like? Hoping in the Lord first looks like despair. (laughs) Seems backwards, but that's where we begin to prepare for hoping in the Lord. Second, it will look like surrendering our attempts to self-redeem. And finally, finally, hoping in the Lord will mean fixing our eyes, both individually and collectively, fixing our eyes on the horizon, right? On the dawn of redemption coming. Now, before we look to verses one and two, we need to define some terms. We use so many words that are wonderful and true, but have depths of meaning that maybe we don't always remember. We need redefined. We need to define the words redemption and redeemer. A redeemer is someone who typically at great cost to themselves buys back or sets free someone from captivity or enslavement. And so then necessarily redemption, right, is that event, right, of the being set free, being bought back, redemption and redeemer. But typically people who aren't enslaved, who aren't guilty, who don't feel imprisoned, right, they feel no need for a redeemer. People who aren't despairing say, I don't need redemption, I don't need to be saved. Well, this is not the type of person we find, right, in, Psalm, in verses 1 and 2. What does he say? You can look back at the text. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice, O Lord. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. What does he pray? Does anybody see me? God, do you hear me? Can you help me? He's drowning. Despair over sin and real sin, real guilt, not just fake guilt, not just felt guilt, real guilt. See, sin is not being or doing what God requires. Sin is even doing that thing which God says not to. That's what he is drowning in. Now, we know that it's sin that he is despairing over because if you look at verse 3, it mentions this word iniquity. Iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin, yes, but it carries at times the sense of almost 
perversity, right? A, a grossness or a greatness to it. There's a weightiness to iniquity. You see, the psalmist is describing real, weighty, perhaps even gross sin. He's condemned before the Lord. I want you to notice in verse one, the word for Lord, depending on your translation, the ESV always does this. It's all capitalized, L-O-R-D there. And that is signifying that this here in the original Hebrew is God's self-given name. This is Yahweh. This is I am who I am. And when you see that, what you should actually see every time you see Lord is that this is a personal name. This is a personal name that the covenantal God gave to his people so that they know they are his people and that, th- and that he is their God. So you see, as even the psalmist prays, he's praying against not just some unknown, right? Some far off God. No, this is personal. We might also notice in this prayer that there isn't a collective we, right? Like we just prayed when we confessed. We said, we we have done this. We have sinned. The psalmist isn't praying a we. He says, I, I am drowning. Hear my prayer. This is personal. Psalmist is personally calling out, hear me, help me, redeem me. And who's he calling that out to? To the very God who he's offended. Right? He's calling out to the one who he has sinned against. Sin is no game to play, right? It's not something to entertain, though we do it. And it's something we must actually despair over because we are hopeless in it. In fact, it is a slap in the face of the one who created mountains, right? Who created oceans. He's the one who actually chose your eye color, right? He's the one who forms the contours of your personality. It's that one, the personal God, that our sin is a slap in the face to my, uh, my wife and I, we spent several years in the Middle East uh, working with Muslim uh, students, uh, most specifically. And at times, I found it def- difficult to help them understand uh, the personal nature of our sin against God. Now, part of this is due to a differing understanding between the Bible and the Quran. Uh, I said that in a very Arabic-sounding way, the Quran, uh, as to what sin actually is, what sin is. But there is often one sil- uh, illustration that hit home. It went like this. Stick with me. Imagine you slapped a rock. What would happen? Ow, right? What if you slapped a child? Don't do this. Maybe you'd be bitten, right? Maybe they'd squeal. What if you slapped a man on the streets? What might you expect? Probably a punch in the face, perhaps. What about a police officer? Maybe a similar reaction, or maybe a fine, or maybe you're taken to jail. Now, let's imagine you slapped the president, or we'll say a dictator in a far more lawless land. What might happen to you? Torture? Death, perhaps? Now, what if you slapped the God who created the sun and the moon the one who created every living and non-living thing in the entire universe, the one who made your mind, right? The one who made your laugh, that one, the one who gives you the ability to grieve or to enjoy one another. What if you personally and profoundly offended that God? 
The psalmist has. You have. I have. That is what our sin is. It is a personal offense to a personal God who holds us in the very palm of his hand every day. That's what our sin is. And you see, our sin is actually firstly against God. There's the story of King David in, uh, in the Old Testament where King David is the greatest king ever. He really is. And yet then he goes and uh, sleeps with another man's wife. He gets her pregnant and then he has her husband killed. Yikes. But he's the best one in Israel, <laughs> right? Uh, he is, as the scriptures say it. But in Psalm 51, he does what? He despairs and he cries out to God. And what does he pray? There's this great line. He says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. Whoa, what about that guy that you had killed, right? What about his wife? What do you mean, David? See, David isn't trying to discount his sin, but there's a principle here that we have to understand about sin. Our sin is firstly always against God. Sin against other people is still against God. Why? Because everything in the earth is the Lord's, including you, including me. Our very lives are his. For God made all things. Take a moment, just reflect on your life. Okay, reflect. Have you ever prayed something like verses one and two? If you look at verses one and two, have I ever said, Lord, I'm despairing in my sin. Would you hear me? Would you help me? Would you save me? I have no hope inside of you. Have you ever understood that you're a rebel against the God who made all things, that supplies you with everything, every day, that that's the one you have slapped? It's not a rock, though he is the rock, right? Or the stone, our living stone here. Sorry, the pun was too hard to miss. I apologize. But the truth in Wisconsin is the, the average response is, I'm a fairly good person. I'm not as bad as the next guy. To them, Jesus is a nice insurance plan, right? If things ever really go wrong. But in truth, Jesus isn't lovely. Why? Because he's not necessary, right? He can't save us or because I don't really need to be saved if I'm not that bad. Is this you? Do you think you have no need for a redeemer because your sin isn't all that serious? You see, if we don't understand that we have iniquity before God, we will not feel the depths of our despair. We will not cry out like the psalmist does. And most seriously, we then will not take hold of the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ as it is held out to us to draw us out of our drowning. Today, ask God to show you the personal and profound nature of your sin against him. This isn't meant to be manipulative, right? It's not, it's not a guilt trip to just get you to stay there. No. If we want to hope in the Lord, as the psalmist calls us to, as God calls us to, we have to have a real picture of our sin. And we need to know the desperate need we have for our Savior, so pray that today, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time. Pray, God, help me understand my sin against you. Look with me uh, on to verses three and four, our second point. Again, we see that with God alone, there is certain redemption. Verse, verse four says forgiveness. And so we must hope in the Lord. And how do we do that? 
We have to give up all our attempts to try to self-redeem. You gotta stop it. Stop trying to redeem yourself. Verse three tells us uh, what we've been focused upon already. If God marked our iniquities, no one could stand. Right? This doesn't mean that God doesn't know each and every sin. He does. But verse four is this setup. For ver- or verse three is a setup for verse four, which says this. But with you, God, Lord, there is forgiveness. Define terms. Forgiveness. What is it? Forgiveness is to cancel debt. It's the debt of another. And this includes letting go of anger. It includes letting go of resentment and bitterness with that. See, the Lord, instead of counting each sin as though our sins were on some score sheet, right? God instead offers forgiveness. So what kind? I mean, this should be a natural question, right? There's forgiveness. What kind? What kind of forgiveness? Well, verse 8 tells us, If you look down, it says, God will redeem Israel from all his sins. Actually, in the Hebrew, there's even a sense that it's every kind of sin, right? Top to bottom, every single type of sin can be forgiven. Friends, this means, this means for us that there is not a sin that is too ugly, a sin that is too gross, too devilish, that you and I cannot be forgiven for. That does not mean there may not be consequences for our sin in this life. There may be consequences that put someone in jail in confessing such sin. But they're yet forgiven in Christ. Consequences in this life, but forgiveness is available. So why does, if you look at verse 4, why does God offer forgiveness, redemption? Verse 4 says, so that we would fear him. That's kind of strange. At first glance, fearing God may be a very simplistic definition, definition is to live in the in right reverence before God. The sense of living karam deo, they say, before the face of God, rightly revering him. That's to live with fear of the Lord. Consider, consider this example. If your boss or your teacher, perhaps, were to forgive you when you ruined a project, or mom and dad, forgive you when you break that very precious item in the house. Do you want to run away? Does that want, do you want to move away from that person? Or rather, do you want to move in closer? The one with authority has shown you mercy and kindness. You revere such a person. Forgiveness leads to greater fear of God, good fear of God. And so verse 4 is such good news for our despairing hearts. It's meant to be. But for some of us, for some of us, no matter how often God's forgiveness is offered, we actually refuse to receive it, or we refuse to believe it's actually been made ours. When I was uh, 18, I remember being entirely uninterested in God. Somehow a friend uh, did a classic bait and switch and got me to a Christian men's conference. Way to go. He said basketball, and I was there. But I saw something that was absolutely astonishing. I saw grown men, my age, my peers and older, they were boldly confessing their sin, not bragging about the sin that they had been doing. And they did it with hope and with assurance that God forgave them. See, no one had to tell me that I was a sinner. I knew that. But to hear that I could be redeemed, 
wow, I was set on a path to a deepening faith in Jesus Christ. But what I learned over the coming years in college was that I never actually felt like I was forgiven. I even would try and go back. I'd message my friends or the people that I sinned against in my hometown, that place that I'm going back to so soon. And sooner or later, they'd start responding, Ben, we already did this. You already messaged me. The thing is, I couldn't get my hands clean or my heart clean. I didn't believe that I really had forgiveness. I would not receive the forgiveness that God had said was mine in Christ. Is this you? Do you know that you're forgiven? Or do you keep beating yourself up trying to make yourself feel forgiven? Do you live with that sense of God doesn't really forgive me? God doesn't really want to be near me. Do you try to redeem yourself? Do you try to make it right over and over with others? Or do you try to self-redeem, perhaps doing the opposite thing? You don't turn outward to seek forgiveness, but perhaps you go destructive on yourself, beating yourself up. I'm so stupid. I'm so worthless. Who could love me? Perhaps you sacrifice blood. How? Maybe you cut yourself. Maybe you starve yourself, trying to get redemption through this. This is such a common thing in our culture, trying to find relief, trying to find redemption somewhere. Maybe you feel guilty because you have hidden sins that you have told nobody about. Nobody. Sins that if you said them out loud, you're sure no one would forgive you. No, everyone would abandon you. Maybe they're sins from your youth. Maybe they're sins from last night. Maybe this perpetual guilt is from a persistent sin that you just can't overcome. Or frankly, maybe you don't want to. Here the psalmist's prayer is this. With God, there is forgiveness. And it's shown by a Jesus who came to save who? Not the people who looked like they had it all together. No, he came to seek and save the lost. Are you lost? Are you sick? Jesus came for you. That's who he came for. If we call ourselves something better, Wisconsinites, better than the next guy-ism, Jesus didn't come for us. We call ourselves sinners because we are, because that's who Jesus came for. The self-help world, which was a $13 billion industry, I think last year, says you just need to forgive yourself. Just forgive yourself and you'll be okay. Well, perhaps you do need to forgive yourself. But remember, even your sin against yourself is firstly against who? God, the one who made you. Only God has the authority to forgive or condemn. So if God says you are forgiven, you are forgiven. That feeling that you have that I'm not forgiven, you know what it is? It's a feeling. You don't get to decide if you're guilty before God. He does. And if he says you are forgiven, you are forgiven. He doesn't take accord or record your sins anymore. Hebrews 10, 17, it says, God says this to those who trust in Christ. I will remember their sins no more. With the triune God alone, there's certain redemption. So what do we do? We hope in the Lord. You must surrender your attempts at self-redeeming. You need to lay them down. If you have hidden sin, sin that you can't overcome, sin that you haven't confessed, today's a good day to talk to someone about it. This week's a good time to sit down 
Because Jesus came for you. You can say it out loud. You can. Jesus came for the sick and the weary, the sinful. If you're already doing this, but yet you still feel the guilt, that was my plight. You need to open your hands to the Lord and pray the same thing David does in Psalm 51. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Something spiritual God actually needs to do in you to restore the joy of your salvation. Ask God to do that today. Look with me at our, our, our final four verses. We see that to hope in the Lord, you must do this finally. We've had to despair, right, and cry out, and we have to surrender our attempts to self-redeem. Now, finally, we, meet, we must fix our eyes on the dawns, it's with an S, dawns of redemption. In verse five and six, verses five and six, we hear two repetitions. I wait, my soul waits, confident, expectant, waiting. Verse six says, my soul waits more than a watchman waits for the morning. Now, see, watchmen, what did they do? They stood in what felt like endless night, and they were waiting for two things. One, any sign of an enemy attack, or better yet, number two, first, the first light of dawn, right? Because it meant that their hope was realized. Morning's here. Dawn has come. So what is the psalmist waiting for? Because that's just an, just an example. He says, I'm waiting more than that kind of guy. What is the psalmist waiting for? It says the Lord and his word. Some commentators suggest that because forgiveness in Israel is the topic here, redemption is the subject, the word here isn't just the general word. Yes, we do wait for the scripture, God's word, God to speak, but that the psalmist has in mind the day of atonement. They actually would sing this psalm along with the ones around it, the songs of ascent on their way to Jerusalem right, for the Passover. Perhaps they're singing with this in mind, the day of atonement. Why? Because on the day of atonement, what happened? The priests would complete the atonement sacrifice. And what would they declare? Forgiveness. Forgiveness for all who love the Lord, for all who belong to him. See, the psalmist was praying or singing as we did today and as they often did with the Psalms about an annual day of atonement here, perhaps. And we gather to pray and to sing this Psalm knowing that the final day of atonement, the final one, it happened. Hebrews 9.12 says this. It says, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. You see the words that declared forgiveness, they came off the lips of a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ who hung on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin and then who was risen to make us righteous. Forgiveness for all who would turn from thinking their sin isn't so bad from all who would turn from their attempts to self-redeem, for all who would turn from living for themselves to trust in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for themselves, not just collectively, but personally, personally. Though that dawn of redemption has happened in history, right? it has a time stamp, we, like the psalmist, are still waiting for another dawn of redemption. We are. This is why I said dawns of redemption. 
It's Christ accomplished one. But the dawn of the day when Jesus returns is the one that we are waiting for more than the watchmen wait for morning. Right? When Jesus' physical kingdom will be made sight and our redemption will not just be spiritually true as it is right now already, but it will become physically true. Our faith made sight. The question is, are your eyes looking for that dawn? We look back to the one that Christ accomplished, but, but are your eyes fixed on the dawn to come? For the psalmist, it's in the joy of even just the shadow of the day of atonement. That he's, he's turning to sing. You, kinda, you almost see this in the text. He's turning to Israel. His eyes go off himself. And he says what? Hope in the Lord, verse 8. Hope in the Lord. Why? Because God's redemption is plentiful. It's plentiful. It overflows. It's like a tsunami on an unsuspecting coastline, a flooding river that no amount of your sinful sandbagging could stop. It's meant to sweep over your head. You're meant to not touch the ground. Church, you are to drown your sinful life in the blood of Christ, in his steadfast love, and in his certain redemption. The psalmist's invitation actually reminds me of this moment on the Oprah Winfrey show. Stick with me. I know. It was in 2004. And she had everyone open this small white box. And inside the box was a, was a key to a brand new car. And this hilarious scene ensues where she starts yelling this thing over and over again. She says, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. It's hilarious. You should look it up. It's funny. But are we saying this to each other as a psalmist is? If you've believed in Christ, if you will trust in Christ today, the Lord through the psalmist is saying what? You get redemption. You get redemption. You get redemption. You get redemption. You get redemption if you trust in Christ. It's yours. We must sing this to each other. Does the nature of our conversations, when we leave here, yes, we sang about it and talked about it already this morning, singing about the day to come, but do our conversations look like this even at home or among the church? Right? Are we saying there is a day coming? Are we reminding each other of redemption bought on a cross, secured at an empty tomb on the third day, the dawn of a third day? Or are the nature of our conversations more about today's bad news, today's gossip, right? Perhaps sometimes even each other's sin, or perhaps it's in facing our own nagging sin. We need to lean in. We need to lean in to each other, and we need to remind each other we are waiting more than watchmen. We're waiting more than watchmen for the morning, for the dawn that is going to come. When forgiveness and redemption are made sight, would you practice this in the coming week? In the moments of discouragement, the moments of even facing your own sin, you can say, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for a dawn of redemption when the sin will be no more. We can hope in the Lord. The reformer, Martin Luther, he seeks to convince us how terribly desperate we are for a redeemer, and also that Jesus came for us. He says this, I'll close with this. He says, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, life to none but the dead, has mercy on none but the wretched, and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Do you know, oh Christian, That without Christ, you are forsaken, blind, and dead in your sin. 
Christ takes your sin seriously, so much so that he came to save sinners like you and me. Redemption is ours if you're trusting in Christ. If you've trusted in Christ and you still yet feel forsaken, wretched, pray that God would restore the joy of your salvation. And finally, together, let us keep our eyes on the horizon. Keep our eyes on the horizon because the dawn of redemption indeed is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as a people who are needy, a people who are in despair over our sin, whether we've recognized it or not. Help us to recognize it today. Help us to trust in you alone, O Lord, because why? With you, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is certain redemption. Spirit, supply us with the faith we need that we might hope in you until the day that our faith is made sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.